As happy as a butter clam When tides are high I sing A grateful ode to Puget Sound The land of everything I love it from Tulalip To Puyallup, Squim and Pisht And to the Dosey Wallops Where so many times I fished From Brennan to the Boca Chile, From Lummi to La Push And from the lordly Salda to lovely Duckabush. From Samish to Sammamish, Suquamish to Quillacine. The climate is so friendly, it's a land that's evergreen. Hello, and welcome to the History of the Evergreen State podcast. I'm your host and curator, John C., Join me as we explore the rich and diverse history of Washington State. Have you ever been to the large Chinatown in San Francisco? Or possibly Portland's smaller Chinatown area? You've probably been to Seattle's International District. Looking at the I-5 corridor, one might assume that Tacoma, given its rich influence on the history of the Evergreen State, would have a comparatively sized Chinatown. That isn't the case, though. And it's a tragic story of why. To find out, join me on this third installment of History of the Evergreen State Podcast. Today's story begins in the mid-19th century in a small village in what is today known as Taishan, which is located in the Pearl River Delta in China. Qin Ji He, who I will simply refer to as Qin for the most part, was born on June 22, 1844. Chin's father was a manufacturer of crocs to hold soy sauce. Not much else is known about his parents, unfortunately. When Chin was five years old, he came to the attention of an older gentleman in his village, after he kept his calm while a few older boys smashed several of the crocs. He was carrying them for his father, and they were destined to be sold at the local market. The older gentleman was so impressed with Chin that he decided to bring him along on his passage to America. This was around the time of the 1849 gold rush in California, with many people making their way to the area with hopes of making it rich. When he arrived in America, Chin began working in a placer mine, a popular form of mining during this time. Placer mining is typically used when looking for alluvial or string bed deposits of gold. Not much else is known about Chin's time while in California. He eventually made his way to Port Gamble on the northwestern shore of the Kitsap Peninsula. During this time, there were few women of Chinese descent living in the United States, let alone in the Pacific Northwest, so Chin resorted to importing a wife from mainland China. During his time on the peninsula, he befriended the family of Chief Seattle and several other Suquamish tribal members. Chin could also note Mr. Henry Yesler as a friend as well. Yesler Way in Seattle may sound familiar, perhaps? Yesler owned a sawmill in Seattle, and Chin worked at a Port Gamble area sawmill. It was only natural that Henry would try to convince his new friend to move, and eventually it worked. By 1873, Chin was 29 and had made his way to the young town of Seattle, which is only about a decade younger than himself. Soon, 
he met and befriended Chin Chun Hawk, who happened to be from the same village in Taishan that Chin Ji He was from. He soon became a junior partner in the Wa Chong Company, Seattle's leading Chinese business at the time. Known for the importing and exporting of goods, one such product, perfectly legal at the time, was opium. Other goods included fireworks, sugar, tea, and cigars. In 1875, a son was born to Chin making the child the first baby of Chinese descent to be born in Washington Territory. Around the same time, Chin began acquiring labor contracts around the Puget Sound area. Such contracts involved labor on the Mosquito Fleet, coal mines, farming, and railroads, with the particular interest in the building of the Northern Pacific Railway, specifically in the Puget Sound sector. In addition to his work on labor contracts, Chin was also in charge of payroll. Throughout his business relationship with his friend Chin, there was a feeling of uneasiness between the two, mainly because Chin Hawk was more interested in the import-export business, while Chin Ji He was more interested in labor and the contracts that it would bring. If you haven't heard about Anchor, it's the easiest way to make a podcast. Let me explain. First of all, it's free and easy to use. There are creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or your computer. Anchor will distribute your podcast for you so it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many more. You can make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. It's everything you need to make a podcast in one simple place. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started now. The Anti-Chinese Riots of 1885 and 1886 I want to set the stage for this next chapter in the story of Chin Ji He. So bear with me, as this next portion is going to be a little dark and intense. I wanted to focus entirely on Chin Ji He for this podcast episode, but there simply is not that much information out there on him. So I wanted to bolster this episode with some background information around the time that Chin Ji He was in Seattle and what was going around the country and the area as a whole. In 1883, the massive project of laying tracks from the Great Lakes to the Puget Sound, making its western terminus in Tacoma, was completed. This left many Chinese laborers without employment. On September 5, 1885, a massacre on Chinese laborers occurred near the town of Rock Springs, Wyoming. After all was said and done, 28 people lost their lives. Sadly, Shamefully, and on a more local note, this was followed up by a massacre of Chinese hot pickers in the Squawk Valley near today's Issaquah on September 7, 1885. White and Native American hot pickers fired into the tents of Chinese hot pickers, deemed rivals over the fierce competition for employment in the area that was then known as Squawk. This blatant atrocity 
claimed the lives of three completely innocent people. Squawk would change its name to Issaquah in 1899, probably in an attempt to distance itself from that awful tragedy. Later, that September of 1885, at a mining camp on Coal Creek near today's Newcastle, as well as camps near what would become Black Diamond, Chinese miners were ran out of town violently, but no lives would be lost. Tensions ran high in the Northwest that October, and by the 3rd of November, that tension would reach a boiling point in Tacoma. Up to that point, the city of Destiny had a thriving Chinatown and a population numbering roughly 350 residents. On that fateful November day, the angry mob would drive out nearly every single person of Chinese descent living in Tacoma. The population would return slowly and gradually, but the city of Tacoma quickly lost its Chinatown, never to regain it again. Tensions were high throughout the Evergreen State at this time, and to the north of Tacoma in the Queen City, federal troops were stationed in Seattle for 10 days following the incident in Tacoma. Following the withdrawal of troops from Seattle, tensions seemed to cool, and by early 1886, many thought the crisis was over and relations would normalize. Oh, how wrong they were. On the stormy night of Saturday, February 6, 1886, a raucous meeting was held at Seattle's Bijou Theater in the Red Light District near Yesler and 2nd and 3rd Avenues. All were intent on solving this so-called problem with more forceful options than what they had thought were used previously. They planned to do this legally, claiming that the Chinese, who they believed lived in crowded and cramped conditions, were in violation of the so-called cubic air ordinance that was in place in the city of Seattle at this time. This ordinance attempted to regulate that each person sleeping in a residence within city limits be granted 512 cubic feet of airspace. Many, feeling that this was their chance and the rule of law on their side, organized so-called committees of 15 to inspect residences in the Chinatown area of Seattle the following morning. Chinatown, at this time, was located directly next to the red light district near Yesler, not much more than a block or two in size, much smaller than today's international district. As the dawn broke on February 7th, the steamer, Queen of the Pacific, found herself docked at what was then called Ocean Dock which was at the foot of Main Street. As the Queen of the Pacific quietly sat at port, probably shrouded in a slight fog coming off of Elliott Bay, several groups of five to six men, each accompanied by a member of the Seattle Police Department, began to quietly go door to door through Chinatown. The policeman, with the small mob of angry and riled up men behind him, would question the occupants of each residence. These questions revolved around the cubic air ordinance, which was little known amongst the Chinese community. Mind you, by this time, the amount of people of Chinese descent in Seattle 
was slightly less than half of what it was in 1884. Most Chinese residents had fled after hearing news out of Tacoma and Squawk in the fall of 1884. As the policemen would question them in their homes, the mob would quietly stare sullenly and intimidatingly. Once the questions were asked and feeble answers given, the men in the mob would enter their homes and proceed to remove most of the people's belongings and stack them on wagons which were bound for that steamer I mentioned earlier, Queen of the Pacific. By half past ten, the calmness of the situation that was experienced in the morning quickly diminished. Crowds of onlookers had gathered to help or watch. Most churches, this being a Sunday in the 1880s, had let out service for the day, so they began to ring their bells to draw attention to townsfolk not yet currently aware as to the tragedy unfolding in Chinatown and the waterfront of Seattle. Tensions boil over. Firebells quickly joined in the cacophony, which were intended to alert the Seattle Rifles and the Seattle Home Guards to assemble. A posse, assembled by King County Sheriff John McGraw, quickly confronted the gathered mob. Severely outmanned and outgunned, so to speak, the posse failed to make any sort of impact. Washington Territorial Governor Watson Squire, who just so happened to be in Seattle at the time, issued a proclamation ordering the mob to disperse. It was immediately met with laughter and derision. By a quarter to one in the afternoon, most of the Chinese community had been gathered onto the ocean dock as well as their hastily packed belongings. The Ocean Queen, which was captained by Jack Alexander, was set to depart for San Francisco later that afternoon. Jack, playing the part of an inadvertent hero, but more likely out of frugality and prejudice, refused to allow anybody or their possessions aboard without receiving payment in full. This demand was quickly met with shouts, and soon, Men began fanning throughout the mob and began collecting monetary donations. Rather quickly and quite shamefully, 100 members of the Seattle Chinese community found themselves aboard the steamer, fair fully fashioned. Remember when I mentioned that the King County Sheriff, John McGraw, had attempted to form a posse to disperse the crowd? Well, he and the territorial governor and the posse were not just sitting on their hands while this chaos ensued. A writ of habeas corpus had been made and was served to Captain Jack aboard the steamer, which was set to depart in just minutes. Being served quickly ended that plan. Jack was charged with illegally restraining the 100 members of the Chinese community aboard his ship. He was ordered to appear in court the following morning and to bring every single person held against their will with him to the hearing. What members that didn't have their fare covered were herded, along with their possessions, into a nearby warehouse to spend a cramped night. A devious scheme was hatched in the early hours of February 8th, which involved members of the mob that hadn't really been dispersed until around midnight. They planned to forcefully put a large portion of the residents being held in the warehouse aboard a train that was bound for Tacoma. 
Word soon leaked out to the authorities, though, and they ordered the train to depart early, thereby thwarting another attempt to illegally remove these human beings. Two militia companies, the Home Guard, and Sheriff John Hart McGraw himself, escorted the Chinese to the King County Courthouse, which, at the time, was located a block south of its current location. Chief Justice of the Supreme Court of Washington Territory, Roger Green, proceeded to ask each and every individual that was wrongfully rounded up whether or not they wanted to leave or they wished to stay. Most answered that they would, in fact, like to leave. They would be quickly escorted back to the dock. After taking on its limit of 196 passengers, no more were allowed to to board the ship that was captained by Jack. Plans were soon hatched to get the passage for the remaining members of the Chinese community aboard a soon-to-be-arriving steamer, the George W. Elder, but it wouldn't be there until a few days. That day was rapidly approaching noon, and considering themselves to be victorious for the moment, the members of the mob celebrated and shook hands, while members of the Home Guard decided to march the remaining people back to their homes in Chinatown, most of which had been quickly demolished in the chaos at the docks the previous day. The march began east up Main Street, but by the time they reached First Avenue South, the Home Guard and the people they were set to protect were confronted by an angry mob, some estimate to be close to 2,000 people. People at the head of the mob began to shout and demand where the people were being taken. Tensions quickly reached a boiling point. When the mob was ordered to step aside so the home guard could take these people to their rightful homes, most, if not all, in the mob refused this order and did not budge. Several members of the home guard attempted to arrest some of the more daring members of the mob. Seeing the arrest being attempted, this drove the mob into a stupor. The mob attacked the guards and a full-scale riot had begun. Fists and haymakers flew, only to be met with smacks and pops from the butts of rifles of the home guards. This was met by members of the mob attempting to disarm the home guard. Some even took this a step further and began taunting them to open fire. Several members of the home guard took this as a sign and opened fire into the crowd. Immediately upon hearing the shots, the members of the Chinese community the guards were protecting fell to the ground, where they stayed for the next intense half hour to 45 minutes. Five people in the mob would be injured. One of the injured would pass away the following morning. Some of the wounded hollered for the mob to attack the home guard, but they refrained mainly due to the arrival of the Seattle Rifles, who had heard the shots fired and quickly ran to the scene from the dock at the foot of Main Street. They rapidly formed a line in front of the Home Guard and were soon joined by Company D, who were stationed at the nearby King County Courthouse. The wounded would be carried off and a tense standoff ensued for roughly the next half hour. Cooler heads would prevail, 
mainly after a strict talking to from one of the main anti-Chinese agitators amongst the mob, John Keane, who claimed that enough damage had already been done and it would be folly to cause further bloodshed. The mob would soon disperse and the members of the Chinese community returned to Chinatown. Within the hour, Governor Watson Squire enacted martial law. All saloons were to be closed immediately and a strict curfew was to be put in place. Military, as well as Seattle police officers, were stationed on every corner in the business district to enforce the curfew. Though to the frustration of many city officials, many people received passes the first night, and by the following evening, far more stringent requirements for passes were put in place. For the following week, after being ordered to Seattle on February 9th by United States President Grover Cleveland, some 300 troops from Vancouver, made up of eight companies of the 14th Infantry, arrived at the city dock on February 10th. These companies continuously marched the streets of Seattle during the day and tensions began to dampen. By February 12, 1885, the Seattle Times had a headline that read, Good Order Once More. By February 10th or 11th, it wasn't really specified, another 110 members of the Chinese community departed on the steamer Elder. With the steamer's departure, the Chinese community of Seattle numbered only a few dozen, Chin Ji He among them. Martial law ended in Seattle on February 22nd, two weeks after the riot began. Though calm had been maintained, federal troops remained stationed in Seattle until the summer of 1886. According to the fantastic local author Murray Morgan, among the few defenders of the rule of law were the Methodist Episcopal Ministers Association member and judge Thomas Burke. Burke, himself an immigrant and generally a friend of labor, was nonetheless a stronger defender of the Constitution. He also spoke out that his fellow Irish should identify with the Chinese as fellow immigrants, a view which fell almost entirely on deaf ears. Chin Ji He was a central figure in the efforts at political, as well as diplomatic, defense against the riots of 1886. During the crisis, as a representative of the community, he exchanged several telegrams with the Chinese Consul General, Ao Yang Ming, who was in San Francisco. In addition to the telegrams, Chin also made sure to keep meticulous records of the damage done to the Chinese businesses and homes during the riots. Due, in part, to these records, the Chinese community of Seattle came out of the riots in far better shape than that of its southern neighbor Tacoma, whose community all but disappeared for the remainder of the 19th century. Through a favorable ruling by Judge Thomas Burke, the community remained in the city and collected $700,000 in damages. Chin decided to strike out on his own as a labor contractor and, in 1888, he formed the Kwong Tuck Company, also known as Kwong Tuck Lung or Kwan Tuck Company. They supplied workers to the Great Northern Railway 
as well as the Seattle and Walla Walla Railroad and Transportation Company. In addition to supplying workers to the regrading projects that were just beginning to change the shape of Seattle, Chin, in an entrepreneurial role, was also involved in rail lines along Railroad Avenue on the waterfront, which is known today as Alaskan Way, as well as a cable car that ran along the waterfront along Yesler Way. Chinese masons were provided through Chin to help construct the Burke Building, which took up an entire city block at 2nd Avenue and Marion Streets. In either 1904 or 1905, around the time that the Chinese community of Seattle reached the size it was prior to the riots of 1885-1886, Chin would pass his business on to his son, Chin Lem. Chin Ji He returned to China where he put the money that he earned in Seattle into entrepreneurial ventures into founding a seaport, while at the same time he served as a connection for the Seattle China Club. The club, which advocated for stronger trade between the Seattle area and China, saw some of its members invited to attend the opening of the Chin-funded port in Guangdong. Sorry if I mispronounced that. He also helped finance the construction of South China's first railway, known as the Soon King Railway Company. While these ventures were afoot, Chin also continued to have some business associations in Seattle, which gave him reason to visit the states frequently, with Seattle being a favored travel destination. Chin last returned to the city where he built his fortune in 1922. Chin Ji He would pass away at the age of 85 in 1929, leaving behind a legacy which now in- includes a beautiful statue in his home city of Taishan. In Seattle, the building he financed for himself, the Canton Building, also known as the Chin Ji He Building, now known as the Yan Yik Building, still stands today, albeit a little altered. In 1928, a corner of the building was removed due to a rerouting of 2nd Avenue South. This building has the distinction of being one of the first brick buildings raised in Seattle after the Great Fire of June 6, 1889, which I mentioned in my first podcast episode. My sources for this episode were the University of Washington Library's Digital Collections, Archives West, ChineseExclusionFiles.com, HistoryLink.org, and Wikipedia.org. Thank you for listening to Episode 3 of the History of the Evergreen State Podcast. Look for a new episode arriving next week, and be safe out there. There's peace on the Skokomish, on the Queets, and on the Hull. There's calm on the Nisqually, born of ageless ice and snow. A land that nature loves so much, she stays the whole year round. I trade a royal palace for a shack on Puget Sound. There's Chimicum and Stillicum, where spouts the gooey duck. The singing Stilliguamish and the swirling Skookum Chuck. And Moclips and Copalis. Where the razor clams abound A little bit of heaven Is a shack on Puget Sound 
A little bit of heaven is a shock on Puget Sound.